0: This week's episode of Where Peter Is Live, I'm your host, Rachel Amiri. I'm production editor for wherepeteris.com. I'm joined today by our panel of contributors. Um, Let me bring them in. We're going to describe what we do for you (laughs) on our wonderful show here. Thank you for joining us if you are watching live after all of our technical difficulties that delayed the start of this show. Um, But here we have our guests. Um, We have Stephen Millies, he's joining us for the first time. I'm going to unmute him so we can say hi.
1: <laughs> hi there. I apologize for the delay.
0: It's not your fault. <laughs> um, we have Melinda Ribneck, contributor, hi. and Mike Lewis, our editor in chief.
2: Hello. I think On this be- weekly, it's what? because of. As Steve was saying, he was having some 5G issues because of his vaccine. So maybe that been... could be
0: all of us. There was some like cross interference. Yeah, I
2: I I've only had one all... so far. So that might have maybe cut <laughs> the speed in half or something like that. We...
1: What one would Highly think with all, with all of the Microsoft software that they've encoded into me now that things would have been smoother.
3: <laughs> maybe you were using Apple.
1: <laughs> I am now. Strangely, now it's working. Well, a shout out to my wife and a thanks for her laptop. Mine was not up to the task
0: it happens we've had we've had worse i think crises on this on this live stream before um but on tonight's episode we're going to talk about the role of politics envisioned by the church and especially articulated by pope francis and fratelli tutti um a lot of steve's recent comments and his work overall as a political theorist catholic political theorist and we'll talk in particular about his most recent piece for where peter is um, which is called Love is the most urgent political issue, which you can find on our website um, if you go check it out right now. But we are going to start with a prayer, and it is the Feast of St. Catherine of Siena, who is doctor of the church. So it's in the name of the Father and Son, the and Holy Spirit. Father, in meditating on the sufferings of your son and in serving your church, St. Catherine was filled with the fervor of your love. By her prayers, may we share in the mystery of Christ's death and rejoice in the revelation of his glory, for he lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever.
2: Amen. 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 I saw her head.
0: Wow.
3: That is <laughs> such a Catholic thing to say.
2: <laughs> so the rest of her body is, I think, in Rome, but her head is on display in um, in Siena, and it's it's like... It's incorrupt, but it's like a little bit too far. So you don't know, you drop in a coin and it lights up for about Stop! three seconds. I'm not even joking. This is...
0: What in the I world are you talking about? You dropped I... a coin
3: where?
2: But then, so there's like a little there's... coin slot in front of, like otherwise she's kind of dark, but if you put in a coin
3: the they do that a lot.
2: like a Euro, right. then, it, then, the, then it brightens up you for about what? 30 seconds. They are not off. right
3: for that. They are not. There's one thing. Okay. They want you to pay a dollar for the candle to pray for the dead. Okay. Okay. We already monetized that. But y'all putting lights on people's heads in charge of quarters? Like, what is that? Well, there's this no is recording, so is
2: there? We, what's that? There's no recording. Just oh, no. Like... It doesn't. It's not like one of those. Yeah. It doesn't sing or anything like that.
0: <laughs> there's. Isn't but, that the know, church, church this of the Jesu in Rome? Have, they have an actual, like, light and sound display at the church of the jesu it's the jesuit church in rome and it's like a whole side and it's some like baroque machine or something and it's really it's, it's this is so else. catholic yeah no, it's it, crazy cringew- i sure yes. they have like Optional donation, they'll call it optional. So it's no, not no it's optional because it doesn't turn on unless you put yeah, your three years. Right, <laughs> so, you want the electricity, yeah. like yeah. you want you the
1: light. You know, there is a Mike Judge movie waiting to be made where Disney has taken over the Vatican and all of these things that we're talking about actually happen. The audio <laughs> animatronic relics and everything else. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god,
3: animatronic relics. That's amazing. What well, is so that intense to talk about? St. people do say the church tonight. is
2: is too commercialized but they don't really think about how much worse it could get
3: come on out the donation is optional <laughs> well
2: you could always bring your own light
3: yeah exactly Good you point. You could well bring that was flashlight. i mean i saw
2: it before before smartphones with the you know with the flashlight on the back i bet people nowadays are just holding these things up and you they're know, gonna get there.
3: smart, they're gonna put like reflective glass so the light has to come from the inside to light up the head. This is crazy, dog! It's,
1: it's an arms race, but it's also a very Catholic hack to bring your own, uh, your own light to the relic. Yeah. Uh, I,
3: I kind of been playing on this little arms race pun for a second because you know they got some saint's arm up oh. in there, like, like <laughs> the arm is a nickel, the head is a water, <laughs> the arm is a nickel. Yes, I want
2: like to that. plug a book that goes into this it's about five or six years old it's written by john thavis davis john thavis called vatican prophecies i think and it's it covers like all this kind of like catholic you know apparition chasers and relic hunters and just that whole world that you know the vatican is very bureaucratic and tries to be very sensible you know tries to be very rational like looking into the miracles during the canonization process and trying to authenticate them. But like this um, particular, but like this is the book about how modern technology especially has kind of let this stuff go haywire. Like a, a uh, an apparition can be totally out of um, the church's can, control by the time they it even notice. It can be
3: communicated it. before even the hierarchy has the chance to. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Which is kind of what, where Peter is. Does sometimes <laughs> we're gonna start
3: like <laughs> guessing relics now? Like, this
2: well, no, is- but I'm I'm saying you know somebody says something crazy at the church and yeah. it's become a trend. Right. And, before you, and the, you know, and Rome might weigh in in 30 years, you know, well, kind of- this is the whole problem that the church and our
1: politics have in common. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a lot of ways, we are living through a convulsion that's a lot like the invention of the printing press. Uh, yeah. the, 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 the authority of information has become flattened uh, in a way that everybody suddenly is their own pope. Uh, and it's very difficult for, for an institution like the Roman Catholic Church, which is not only a large bureaucracy, but it's also basically an ancient or medieval institution. Uh, it's hard for an institution like that to figure out how to digest these events, uh, which is the value of what pe- where Peter is does, by the way. And that's an awkward thing to say in a sentence. Uh, the value of what where Peter is does. <laughs>
3: I'm yeah, proud of you, you it, did a good job with it
2: well you know it's funny because the fact that it ends with the word is and it's like where peter is is a website that you know and it's like you've got it and then the the grammar check on word and you know and the internet is always saying <laughs> like you've that. got a double word going on there but um
1: well the blind alley i found myself in there too was what where is does yes Oh wow! And, um, Let's never do that again. We're gonna change the name of the website before we're done here
3: today. Yeah, Mike. <laughs> well, got <laughs> well, <there>, Mike. <laughs>
2: is some of our, some of our least, some of the readers that like us the least have come up with their own names. That's for true. So, um, there's,
3: there's that one guy that I like. He, he gets us kind of accurate, you know. Yeah. No, he's, he's always... gotten
2: lazy. There's a website that likes to. Occasionally, Publish they would synopses. take a quote and. You know but now he just sort of takes the headline or the most important line or just the title and and calls us where's where's peter question mark rag like we're a rag of some kind but anyway that's, it's amazing
3: but- though because he like presents a synopsis of what we've said but his intent is that he thinks that what we said is so crazy the audience would be like oh that's terrible But they're actually like legit synopsis. And if he wasn't so like deranged and not thinking with the church, then he might see that like, it's not crazy.
1: He's providing you a valuable service and for free. I mean, in this world, that's, that's not easy to come
2: by. Exactly. Right. But actually I can kind of see what you're saying. Like this world of technology right now, we've got, I mean, so much is happening. I mean, social media drives so much real world Mm -hmm. stuff like s- social media is is super engaged people who are creating scandal, who are saying things in real time about, about different people. And, you know, our, our bishops, a lot of them are still writing their weekly column for the <laughs> diocesan newspaper, which is no longer printed and is hidden away somewhere on the, on their diocesan website that hasn't been updated in nine years. And, um, And it's, I I think that's kind of created a a chaotic situation.
1: Mm. Or worse,
3: Um, some of the bishops are on social media and maybe not understanding what their voice on personal matters might mean to, you know, non Catholics and that kind of, or Catholics, you know, that, you know, have this convenience. And so that's the thing too, is bishops on social media, maybe arguably more casually than they should be.
2: Yeah. And, (laughs) and I mean, I think, I think that um a lot of these fringe movements have maybe uh, you know so, some of these bishops they they wouldn't know how to do this of their own initiative you know beyond social media mm-hmm. but they but the um you know some organization or or they they might help a bishop create a website and create a social media presence and Um, and then, and help, and then harness the power of social media behind an agenda. Whereas random, you know, Bishop Joe O. Johnson out in the middle of the country, out in the Midwest, you know, in one of the smaller dioceses out there, probably doesn't even, you know, have a smartphone. So it's, um,
1: well, it's like the former president, right. Who famously doesn't know how to email and yet somehow, um, has grasped the intuitive it has intuitively grasped the power uh, of how these technologies and these platforms can wire mainline right into the, the public consciousness. Um, And, and, you know, there are people who have that intelligence, even if they themselves are technically inept, Uh, people who are naturally good communicators, I think, can see and understand very quickly what's going on here. I'll say, you know, we were talking a little bit during the technical struggles earlier. I've been off Twitter for a bit now and, you know, there are many reasons why. But one of the things that I noticed very quickly um, and I'm very grateful for is that my I've taken the needle. I've taken the main line out. Uh, And my own pace of thinking and engaging with events uh, has slowed down in a way that I'm finding very pleasing. Uh, It's, it's nice not to have to, constantly be aware of what's happening in the church in the world. And it's delightful uh, if I could say not to constantly be thinking about what am I going to say about this in a 280 character increment? Um, there's a lot that I miss about it, but uh, you know, we we had a slow food movement for a while, about 10 years ago, we could probably use to have a slow information movement. I think we'd all be a little bit better off, but th- these are genies that are very hard to get back into the bottle.
0: Yeah. I mean, for sure. One of the, um, so on our recent trip, we listened to a podcast that was about social media and and how um, the way that the different algorithms work or just the different formats work is that it's designed to promote confrontation. And they were drawing from wisdom from like, uh, social sciences related to hostage negotiation and how a hostage negotiator to really convince someone to not harm others needs to make them feel safe. And if we're like the, the analogy they were drawing was like, if you are trying to engage with someone and convince them on social media, um, you need to use some hostage negotiation type of techniques to make the other person feel safe validated um, and engage with them in a relationship if you're going to have any hope of convincing them or engaging in a real argument that's not just kind of you're both emotionally like meeting some inner need for, you know, the, the dopamine rush of mm-hmm. anger, basically.
1: I, I often thought I didn't have a lot of very unpleasant engagements on Twitter in my time. there. really almost none at all. i work with some people who do and I have some friends who do. Um, but I, I always thought, even in those moments, more people should have the experience of having been a classroom instructor. Um, <laughs> because because it's um, it's a kind of preparation for life in a way. You're constantly on stage, you're constantly thinking, you have to constantly, even, even in a college classroom, you've gotta be ready for the next thing that's going to happen before it mm-hmm. happens. And and there's also a a pedagogical cast of mind that you have to have, that you're really thinking about what you're saying and how it's going to be received by the other person and how you can move that person to the next thing that you need to move them to, not by telling them what I want them to hear, but by telling Mm -hmm. them what they need to hear Mm -hmm. in order to get to the next thing. I I, I don't often quote Martin Heidegger, and, and he's not the most... He's not the philosopher in the 20th century that you'd want to quote the most. But he's got a lovely paragraph in one of his books about teaching. And I think it's kind of applicable here, too, that the hardest thing, that the teacher's job is harder than the students, uh, because the teacher has to learn how to let learn. Uh, and, And in that confrontational environment on social media so often, we're trying to tell people things rather than let them hear what we're trying to say to them. Uh, And and that is, I think, something that you learn when you're in a classroom for long enough. Um, I think parents oftentimes have this skill, too. But uh, I I oftentimes have thought that's a good antidote for for the constant confrontation uh, that, that social media puts us into.
0: And Steve, you're a professor of public theology, but you're trained as a political theorist. How would you see like that form of communication relating to maybe political life and the kinds of, you know, dialogue and engagement that the church really would encourage us to
1: engage in? That was a good segue. Um, (laughs) She's getting good at that. (laughs) Good job Rachel. And I actually think this is a good way to open up the conversation about polarization too, because... um, So much of our public life, and so therefore now the social media space is where we meet, so much of our public life is built on a kind of performance that we are all, whether self-consciously or not, we're all engaged in. Um, Ezra Klein had a book that came out last year called Why We're Polarized, uh, and I opened it skeptically, but it's actually quite good. And he talks in there about a distinction. When we, For example, when we hear about economic policy or when we hear about something like what the president talked about last night at Congress, if we approach it with a frame of rational self-interest, which is sort of the presumption of our political system, that we're all rationally self-interested actors, we're all going to ask the question, what is this going to do for me when we're asking whether we should support it or not? But when we enter this space that... Um, Klein calls identity politics, and I think that's basically right, although what he's doing with the term is a little different from how people normally use it. When we enter this space that we're in, uh, which is based on confrontation and which is based on a kind of a public performance that we're all undertaking all the time, rather than asking the question, um, what is this going to do for me? The question we ask instead is, what is this going to say about me? When I let people hear that this is what I support so that we are constantly shaping a public image for the next confrontation that we're going to enter Uh, to answer, you know, the question, Rachel, that you asked, you know, confrontation doesn't belong in a classroom. A classroom really should be a lot like a political space. And, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily mean that all of our political arguments should seem like fine European salons where philosophers are sitting around debating what the good is. I mean, it would be swell if that was true, but it's not true. But nevertheless, we can be rationally self-interested actors who are asking the question, what's this going to do? Um Classrooms are not based on confrontation. They're based on the exploration of that. One of the breakdowns I think we're experiencing right now is that our politics was formed with the expectation that we would ask what things will do. And instead, the question we're all sort of quietly internally asking is, what's this going to say about my public image after people hear that it's what I think?
0: So what do you think has kind of led us or what are some of the factors that have led to that point because has it always been about what you're describing identity kind of formation through taking certain confrontational positions like that seems like a novel sort of development so how have we gotten there and what or i guess specifically to our catholic audience and to the topic we are going to discuss today how is that how have we shifted into that sort of orientation would you say
1: well i think. We could really fill an hour talking about that. I'll try to to go at it this way. Uh, I might be the only political scientist in the United States who hasn't seen Hamilton, but I know, I know the story. Um, And you know, what you have in Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton are two guys who lived a very long time before Twitter, but who were nevertheless spending their entire very public lives shaping their images And asking those questions. What is this going to say about me? What is this going to do to my standing if I do this or if I do that? Uh, And in many ways, of course, that was the beginning of partisan politics in the United States. But what we should really notice is that in the late 18th and early 19th century, that was a really strange thing to do. Not a lot of people were thinking that way. There are a lot of reasons I think that we began to think that way. Uh, And they're all, you know, pretty encouraging things. They're things that we should feel good about. One is widespread literacy in public education. Uh, One is uh, longer lifespans that should give us the kind of leisure to reflect on things that are not essential to our survival. Uh, Another is the development of media and the consciousness of media. Um, Our relationships with one another really are changed, I think. Uh, because our perception of ourselves are changed by the fact that something can be recorded, that something can be uh, either heard later, uh, can be transmitted later. There's something of us that's going to live on in a recording. Uh, and I think we begin thinking about ourselves and life and our relationships to one another differently. But finally, also to go back to Jefferson and Hamilton, Klein says a lot of political scientists say, and I will certainly agree that something has happened in the party system in the United States. Um, which is unusual among advanced democracies for being a two-party system. Most are multi-party systems. Uh, Here, this two-party system has really taken on increasing characterizations of negative polarization, uh, of not defining myself as something, but rather against something. Uh, That's something that has happened Uh, over the course of the second half of the 20th century, which was when media technologies uh, began to enter our lives. But it was also when Western movies, cowboys and Indians began to enter our lives, black hats and white hats. Um, It's when uh, sporting events began to be uh, widely available. And so you've got the team that you're rooting for and the other team. I think a lot of things have conspired in the ways that we consume media to teach us to think us versus them. And then of course at the bottom of it all, we're primates and that's what we're (laughs) coded to do in the first place, right? To identify the group who is like us so we will feel safe. So I think it's a lot of those pieces all together that have finally met in this moment um, where uh, uh, Klein talks about a book that's about the uh, Duke-UNC rivalry that he came across. Um, I hope I can remember the name of the title of the book. Uh, With hatred like this, I can always be happy. And, and you know, I mean, I live in Chicago, Illinois. I root for the Chicago White Sox. I'm open to a lot of things and a lot of things and a lot of people, a lot of different kinds of experiences. I have no love for the Chicago Cubs. There's there are some bridges that I'm unable to cross. We we all know what that feels like. But when it stops being something that we can laugh about and enjoy, and it can be a kind of a, a good natured rivalry, and it, it becomes it becomes what we saw on January sixth.
2: And I, I think that The United States in in particular, because we have this division between, um, you know, liberals and conservatives or progressives and and right wingers. I mean, it's funny because these terms don't mean the same things in other countries as they do in the U.S. But we've got this system like the piece, the pieces I wrote recently about the right and the left in the church and kind of went back and forth over. Whether or not I should use the terms, or what term would be more appropriate, and I finally concluded, everybody in the U.S. knows exactly what I'm talking about when I use those terms. Like, let's okay, we can be high and lofty and not use, but it's you know you've sort of got the the peace and justice on the left, and you've got the the pro life and the sexual morality on the right, and then you've got um, small market economics on the on the right, and then you've got or and free trade. And then on the left you've got social programs i mean it's a but it's they um basically the way everything is 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 split is so polarized and i think one of the things with when pope francis got elected that rattled people who considered themselves conservative catholics in the united states um he was using the terms and the signals that people on the left use not, and and he's not even working from that dynamic, but because he would say things like social justice and talk about the environment and talk about um, the poor and, and and these kinds of things, I think that that um, fueled some of the polarization in the church.
1: I, I, I think it confused people for reasons that you're talking about. Um, it's been, it's been, I wrote my dissertation a long time ago on Edmund Burke, on the father of modern conservatism, uh, and I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about conservatism in the United States and, and around the Western world. One thing that I am pretty sure of um, is that both conservatism and liberalism as ideas don't belong in the United States, uh, because liberalism came about as a result of the end of feudalism, Um, We entered a period of revolutions of casting off the medieval world and all of that stuff. And then conservatism arrives as a response. So the whole argument between left and right, really, and along a lot of those fault lines that you're talking about, is an argument that's a European argument about a thing that never existed here in the United States. And I can talk at some length about how how it is that it got here. But I think what's important is that a lot of what has characterized, you know, certainly the Cold War era, Uh, during which this line got hardened between the left and the right. It's the period in which the United States, for reasons of expediency, took on this European political argument because it gave shape to this basically European problem that had become a global problem with nuclear stakes. but of course, what's, you know, what's confusing about it today is you've got someone like uh, Jorge Mario Bergoglio who is coming out of an entirely different context. All of that Western European stuff means very little in Argentina. They've had an entirely different experience. Uh, and for those of us who have spent the last two or three generations thinking in this exclusively left, right, uh, communists and socialists are bad, uh, free market capitalism is good and all that comes with it, for those of us who spent all that time thinking about that, it, it's, it's a strange channel change. The problem, of course, is you could preach the gospel both ways uh, because, uh, you know, the gospel partakes of pieces of both of those things. Uh, the left way of thinking and the right way of thinking both came out of a Christian civilization uh, that nurtured all of those things with different emphases that grew like branches of a tree into different directions. Uh, they both have fundamentally the same inspiration. Uh, there is, in other words, a terrific unity where Peter is.
2: Yeah, and I, and I know that one of your heroes is one of the people who's been most thrown into this uh, into this binary in, in the Catholic context, Cardinal Bernadine, um, by embracing the um, consistent ethic of life, also known as seamless garment. I mean, in the U.S. Catholic context, the term seamless garment is code word for liberal dissident. Anything goes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, and and, you know, um to look closely at the relationship between Joseph Bernadine and John Paul II uh, is is to really understand how foolish it is to think that way. I, I think they actually both had a tremendous amount in common, uh, and it always has seemed to me that they both recognized that because uh, you know they certainly knew each other quite well while uh, Wojtyla was in Krakow and while uh, Bernadine was in Cincinnati. They had several occasions to meet, uh, got to know one another, and I, I think they both appreciated one another uh, as men. Who were formed very much by the church. Uh, men who I think too both had a kind of an outsider's perspective on their own culture. Uh, because uh, Wojtyla uh, is in a very Catholic world that's surrounded by Polish communism. Bernadine is growing up in an immigrant Italian family in South Carolina where there are almost no immigrant Italians at all. Um, They both were formed by the Second Vatican Council and they were both deeply committed to the church and to what being church would mean in the 20th century. Uh, I could go on at some length about this, but I, I think that's dead right. When we look really closely at these things, the difference between left and right disappears. Uh, and and these things only become divisive when we want to ignore the complexity and the reality of what's going on underneath.
0: So then how did we get here to this point where people will immediately jump and think the seamless garment is left and Abortion as a preeminent political issue is right, and I'm going to, to interpret everything I hear in the Catholic world through this lens, if really it's coherent at its root. What are the factors that contributed to us getting to this point, this, this level of polarization, not just in the country, but within the church, within our Catholic
1: community? So, I know so, you wrote a
0: book about this, so <laughs> brief synopsis, right?
1: <laughs> as brief as I can ever be, you know, yeah. never, never ask a professor to be brief. It practically breaks <laughs> bones. Um, so Phyllis Schlafly. Uh, is probably the best place to begin, a Republican pro-family activist in the uh, late 70s and throughout the 1980s. Phyllis Schlafly was one of the first people, after Cardinal Bernadine uh, first described the consistent ethic of life at a lecture at Fordham University in 1983, Phyllis Schlafly was one of the first people to come out against it. And and she, she, she framed the answer to the question that you're asking about as well as anybody can. She said, the problem is it's going to dilute the opposition to abortion. Right? It's going to take some of the emphasis off abortion, and it's going to put that emphasis into other places. It's going to share that emphasis in other places. The argument that generally then gets made against the consistent ethic is that it is equalizing All of the threats to human life, right, that poverty and the lack of education and the lack of housing are somehow the same morally as abortion. And it's comical when you go and actually read Cardinal Bernadine because again and again and again and again he says, no, it is not about that. There are significant differences between the threats to human life that we have to take stock of. the, the challenge uh, that the consistent ethic puts in front of us is just that, to be consistent, to always, and in every case, make the priority of the of the human life and the, the, the dignity of every human person the first consideration when we engage any kind of ethical, moral, or political question. But the problem we have, and to go back a little bit to the conversation about polarization, polarization in the United States was already long underway by the time we got to the early 1980s. And I do have a long history of that that you can go and read frankly i've got a box of them in my basement you know send me an email i'll send you one all you have to do is
2: read it that's all i ask um that's the price patreon sponsors (laughs) if you'd like a free copy of steve millies's book (laughs) i
0: will send you my address after this
1: (laughs) i'll even sign it uh but so polarization had been underway for a long time at this point a long time and I, I think that uh, the polarization demands of each of us that we ask that question, what is this going to say about me? Uh, how, am, how is this going to alter my performance and other people's perceptions of who I am? And I think for whatever reason, the abortion issue has been peculiarly susceptible. To this kind mm. of identity politics, to this kind of division, uh, and, and I think one of the reasons certainly is because um, if you believe life begins at conception, then the horror of what abortion is mm. is is it's it's uh, you, you feel it in your guts.
2: Um jail- scope, you know. Right. I mean, that's people are always playing the numbers game, right? I mean, there yeah. are a lot of abortions. There are. <laughs> I mean, it's like you know you compare right. the number of people who are executed. I mean, there's certainly a a very strong logic there that that is totally understandable.
1: Right. And I I think, you know, the political scientist in me and the somewhat cynic in me would add that those characteristics of the issue made it very easy to fundraise on for everybody. So it became a perfect wedge issue Mm -hmm. to divide one against the other. Uh, and we spent a lot of time doing that throughout the nineteen eighties and, and throughout the nineteen nineties. Abortion became the vehicle uh, for deepening polarization. And and the argument of my book is Catholics aren't exclusively responsible for that, uh, but but our investment, not in ending in abortions so much as our investment in the abortion argument. Um, our investment in the abortion argument that would have us not want to lose the emphasis on abortion because we're thinking about nuclear war or because we're thinking about poverty or because we're thinking about health care. Uh, our commitment to the abortion argument is something that, that we have to have to take responsibility for. And I think we have to do something about it. And again, I'll say I think the stakes for why we have to do something about it uh, became clear on January 6th. Mm-hmm. which was you know, just sort of the climactic event um, after an, a 2016 election that had, had brought Donald Trump to the presidency that for a year was framed as a fight for the Supreme Court because it was a fight for Roe versus Wade. Um, so that, that perfect polarizing issue uh, had brought us to the point where blood was actually spilled at the seat of the American government um, because of what it would say about me if I even allowed the votes to be counted.
0: So, I mean, there's, it's hard to follow up on
1: <laughs> <Yeah, I'm... laughs> January
0: 6th. I mean, I, I know just it's stunning to even think back to the events of that day. And oh, then it's yeah. also quite stunning to realize that we aren't still talking about it every single day, about what happened. It's been, what, like four months now since that occurred, and it's sort of faded. I don't know if you have any thoughts as a political scientist on why <laughs> is
2: well, not- I, if I can jump in, I'd say it's it's gotten even worse. I mean, I would say that, I mean, yeah, January 6th in terms of drama and the theater that we talk about was definitely a moment. But when we look at what's happened in terms of COVID and anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists and uh, QAnon type thinking is is continuing, even though we should be, I mean, January sixth should have been sort of the, the the peak, but there is no peak, or I guess gutter, is basement. <laughs> um, I don't know what the term is, but yeah, go I, go ahead, Steve. But that's just my thought. It's it's.
1: Well, I I mean I I don't disagree. Um, I, I think um, I, I don't want to talk too much about. It, it is astonishing that it's taken this long, and there may still not yet be a Blue Ribbon Commission to investigate it, to get to the bottom of it, to really understand what happened. I think all of that is true. But I think, I'd, you know, following Mike, I'd want to make a different point too. the QAnon and the commitment to going farther and farther and farther down the rabbit hole. Uh, it's no longer just a matter of the polarization. It really now is a commitment to an alternative reality. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, for many people too, you know, think about it again, what is this going to say about me? <clears throat> for many people, they bought so far in, That there's just no there's there's no alternative but to keep going forward. The question Mm -hmm. is how it happened. And this, I think, too, is really important. Um, you know, I used to, when I was teaching political theory, I don't anymore. I kind of wish I was. It would be a fun time to be doing it. But when I used to teach political theory, I used to teach Nietzsche at the end of the semester when I would do the introduction to, uh, to political theory. And uh, Nietzsche was always tremendous fun to teach because he's a fun, playful writer anyway. Uh, but, the, but the day where we talked about God is dead was always a great day. Um, and of course, you know, for Nietzsche, this is a lament. Uh, it's a lament that we have lost the capacity to believe in the ideals of the ancient world. Uh, we become disenchanted. That was the word that Max Weber used in the 19th century. Uh, for Hannah Arendt in the 20th century, she talked about the loss of authority, that we no longer believe in authority. And a lot of this also, too, by the way, has something to do with our identity politics, that we we, we engage in this performance Um, As a way of projecting a reality onto a world where we really don't find anything that we can believe in. And the point is to say, um, whether they have done it, um, whether something has happened that the churches, plural, not the Catholic Church, but the churches and faith communities and religion in, in, in social and public life generally, whether it's because of something they did or whether it's because of something that just simply happened. That's the thing that we could talk about and argue about and probably never figure out. But the terrain that the churches used to occupy in our lives and in social life has been vacated. Mm -hmm. But people still need to believe. And this is Nietzsche's lament is that, where shall we look? To whom shall we turn? Uh, as the Scripture would ask, have us ask um, in a world where you know we are defining ourselves according to how we want to be perceived. And where too, so many of the ways in which we do that are conditioned by consumerism, are conditioned by materialism, the things that we can buy, uh, the ways that we can adorn ourselves with signifiers of who and what we are. Look, I have elbow patches, I'm a professor, right? I mean, all of these things that we do um, are just filling up a hole where meaning used to be and and where faith used to be. Um, and, And so we become even more committed to constructing these identities because we're all terrified of the empty space uh, where that used to be. That, that's basically the dilemma of the age that we live in today, is we become disenchanted and we don't know how to go back. We don't know how to become re-enchanted.
2: Do you think, um, obviously, particip- it's not just the churches to a large extent. Like one of the one of Trump's earliest constituencies in 2015, and throughout 2016 was evangelical christians who didn't go to church um i re- i you know i read some articles about how the decline in um, civic engagement mm-hmm. um was was tied to our polarization we didn't have the the same i we didn't have the the local the people taking part in the neighborhood associations like we used to or people joining um the elks or or yeah you know bowling alone exactly yeah and I, I mean i think there's a there's a community aspect there and i even think in the catholic church um especially in in white suburbia uh when when the church moved out of the urban ethnic centers and into suburbia what we patched back together in terms of 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 church and community life didn't never even approached what what had been there before. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that that necessarily feeds uh, critical thinking or a sense of reality, cause there are plenty of tight knit religions that do, <laughs> you know, that, that go off, you know, that go off course. But I think there's, there's sort of a disconnect and a searching and, and a search for purity. I think the internet fosters that in a lot of ways, I, you know, a little bit, um, but yeah, I think I so, I mean, I guess what one thing that you you know and and what you've brought up and I know you're this political theorist and this and whatever that is <laughs> this encyclical called Fratelli Tutti, yeah, yeah. your Catholic political theorist, Fratelli Tutti, you know lands on your computer screen in October 2020, and. um it spoke to a lot of the themes that, I mean, I, we, we, you were, you took part in our live event and I appreciate that. And you actually had, after reading it for a day and a half, you put together even a little presentation on it. Uh, if you can maybe walk our, our, our listeners and our viewers back a little bit about um, Fratelli 2D and then the concepts, uh, the, the title of this um, broadcast is uh what is it a better kind of politics i forget yeah. um but <laughs> but from? you you wrote which about I, which polit- i think
1: is from evangelia gaudium actually
2: uh, well it's quoted also in this one That's and right. then and then political love um mm-hmm. which is which is kind of i mean i guess it's existed before i had never heard it before for tele duty but um <laughs> Sorry. Did, did he talk about political love in that but it, i, I mean i guess i guess francis is kind of he's kind of laid out a way forward that's not a miracle cure and that's going to take a lot of people buying in Mm -hmm. and it's sort of a path towards rebuilding and healing and unity um and potentially building into something better than what we had before um just i guess what are your thoughts in that in that avenue like okay we've talked about the problems and what's deconstructed here um maybe if you could talk a little bit about Francis's thought and, um, and, and how that relates to the way forward.
1: I, I hope you don't expect that. I remember anything I said, uh, um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Are you-
1: but, but, you know, let, let me say this, let me say this, you know, so I live here, um, I'm very lucky, I'm very lucky, uh, because uh, nobody who becomes a professor ever expects uh, to live where they want to live. I live 12 minutes away from the house I grew up in, in, in neighborhoods that I know very well. And when I was growing up in the late 70s and the early 80s, um, these were places where people were out, I mean, it's a summer evening, it's an early, late spring or whatever it is, it's almost May, but I'm looking out the window here and, and you know there would have been people out walking, there would have been people sitting on their stoops talking to each other, uh, neighborhood culture, Really ex- and, and I'm not trying to be nostalgic mm. about the wonderful America of the baby boom era mm. or anything like that. Mm. It really is something that's deeper in human experience than that. It's the idea of local communities really being in touch with one another. Mm. Um, I talked earlier about all of those forces that have driven us apart. And I often joke as I sit out on the front porch in the evening, sometimes hoping someone might come by. Uh, I often joke, you know, what what has been the end of it has been cable TV and air conditioning. Um, because you you, you have those choices now. And and now what holds us together is maybe we've all seen the same Marvel Cinematic Universe movie or something like that, right? You know, those are the water cooler things uh, that sort of drive us together. Um, So I I think, you know, to try to turn it toward Francis, and I think, you know, I was thinking in that direction, Mike, before you even brought up Fratelli Tutti. I think in a way that's what Francis is trying to remind us of, Uh, And and I think that um, the fact that the encyclical landed during the pandemic uh, was an important part of that too, because the pandemic has been a reminder to us of the ways in which of of what it means for us to be able to be together, uh, even though the possibilities for us to join in a format like this from four very different parts of the United States right now with people presumably who are watching us in all sorts of other spaces is is a tremendous opportunity. That's that good thing about the Internet that you were talking about. But we can't just um, embark on this as something that um, is only meant to affirm what I already think, that is only meant to affirm the identity that I am cultivating neighborhoods for example like the one that I'm in tend you know oftentimes villages or local communities always tend to be fairly fairly homogeneous they tend to be filled with the same kinds of people because like primates we group together uh, with people who make us feel safe and those are usually people who seem like us in some way that seems important to us Uh, so neighborhoods and villages are always going to be like that and yet there's always a kind of an accountability to one another And there are divisions that spring up, and there are those people that you don't want to interact with, but you simply can't get away from. Uh, That's what's wonderful about parishes, too, because they're like family in that way. We are just stuck with each other because we all happen to live in the same space, which is, by the way, the root meaning of what the word politics is, politeia from the Greek. Uh, it's, It's the things common to the polis. It's the problems that we all have because we're all stuck here together, and so we better figure out what it is that we're going to do about them. That's the basic message, actually, of Fratelli Tutti, Um, because whether we translate it as political love or social love or social friendship, we're talking about basically the same thing. We're talking about this kind of togetherness that's forced on us by sharing the same space and sharing the same problems, inevitable relationships that we sometimes desperately want to flee from, but simply can't. Um, Part of our problem, I think, is that our technologies and the individualism of the American way of doing things, which is something that we haven't talked about, but a lot of those things that are woven into our lives today tend to excuse us from those inevitable relationships. They give us ways away from them. Uh, Where Francis talks in Fratelli Tutti about uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, it's a potent reminder of the temptation to move away from community, but also the desperate need that we have for community, that we have to be accountable to one another. We have to stop for the stranger on the side of the road because someone has to, because there's a human needs that's there. Uh, We we are surrounded by all kinds of ways that we want to be able to excuse ourselves. That person isn't like me, that's a bad person, that's a stranger, whatever it might be. But the essence of politics, the real root of politics is friendship. Uh, And and I talk about this a little bit in the the piece that I wrote for Where Peter Is. It's a real seeing of one another. It's a real seeing of who the other person is, a seeing of myself in that person. And if we talk about it in the language of Catholicism, it's the seeing of the imago dei in uh, in the other person. The real, the true identity that that person has, which is also my identity. And that means we have an inevitable relationship to one another. Uh, That's the foundation of the Catholic understanding of politics, but it's also the foundation of what politics actually is. And and I I often complain it's a thing that our political system today has too often excused us from uh, feeling accountable to. Yeah,
0: in your piece you wrote... um that social love is never easy and it's always hardest when we encounter those people who aren't like us. Mm -hmm. Um, but that this is the preeminent issue, the preeminent task for Catholics engaging in politics to be, you know, that healing force in our political community today in this divided social, cultural, religious space that we all inhabit. So what are, and you said this is not just abstract, that it requires concretely acting. So what are some, suggested ways of acting in that concrete, socially loving fashion that you would maybe recommend? Or what are some of your thoughts on those concrete methods of engagement?
1: So just solve it?
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> just some, some first steps, right?
1: <laughs> I think that there's uh, good work that parishes could do here, uh, I, I really do. Um, I worry that it's too late. Uh, I don't know what parish is going to be like. We're sort of thinking about going back at Pentecost, Um, but I don't know who's going to be there waiting for us. Um, But there's good work that parishes can do because parishes are places where we could be talking about what it means to be this community and how this community should model the community that we want to see out there. That's why our dismissal Uh, at the end of the Mass uh, is what it is, Uh, although it's been a long time since I've heard it. So I think I I might not be able to quote it from memory. But, you know, it's that idea of bringing what we have experienced in the word and in the sacrament inside the sanctuary out to the world. Uh, That's really the image of what the church ought to be. Uh, in public life, in political life. It's uh, what Gaudium et Spes says, that the the church should strengthen the scenes of human society. It's a really lovely image to think about. And it's a thing that we could be learning in our parishes. But I think even
3: parishes though, they tend to, um, there is a tendency, especially in more homogenous communities, where parishes become very like inwardly driven on their own community. Um, and servicing their own community. You see the same thing in kind of a micro level too with even Catholic families. But that that would be a hesitation of mine to say that like parishes have um, are going to be able to help this because again, it's anecdotal depending on where you are or what parish you're seeing. But with suburbia, um, parishes have migrated from um, diversity and economic diversity and um, and from these urban areas to suburbs where they essentially serve their own people. Um, and I think that's a big part of this because you're not seeing those who are not like you. You're going to parishes with people like you for the most part.
1: I, I agree, but I would go in a slightly different direction with it. Um, Because I think most parishes are really formed to to serve the people who are there. I think the problem that suburbia presents um, is that we are excused by distance, even from being involved so much in that community. We don't walk there. We drive there. And sometimes it's a 10, 20, 30 minute drive mm-hmm. to get there. Um, And I also Absolutely. want to say, I'm not hopeful about the parish. No, right. don't, I, don't tell, wrong about that. I certainly
3: am not suggesting you were saying that. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I just need the problem. I wanted to bring attention to yeah. too, is that parishes, there is an overemphasis. And again, it's going to vary. If you're talking about more urban parishes, then I can be with that. But like, there is definitely a variance where, um, uh, there's a real problem with inwardly focused parishes.
1: Well, in our parish here, which I won't name, but I, I often joke uh, it, it, the parish is a place where the neighborhood meets on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there, there's both good stuff about that, but mm-hmm. there's also some very insular stuff mm-hmm. about that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's a problem. I, I think what I'm trying to get at though is, is not the hope that I have for the parish so much as th- that what I'm saying is there's work here parishes could do. Mm, I think there's an identity question here that's embedded in what I'm trying to get at, which is, Mm. what does it mean when I say I'm a Catholic? Uh, What what does it mean when I say I belong to this parish? And many times, I think, and this is part of the reason why I think the abortion issue has been so susceptible to, to this divisive kind of thinking. Many times, it's like Meatless Fridays, it's the outward stuff that I'm showing people that I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. It's the what is this going to say about me answer to this question. And I think a lot of our parish life, in ways that you're talking about it in other ways, is built to reinforce that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, I have mm-hmm. often said there's a 103rd Street, not, not far from me here. Every mile, there's a Catholic parish. There won't be for much longer. Mm-hmm. But you could just imagine how in the baby boom years, uh, somebody sat down and figured out it was going to be like building 7-Elevens, that we were going to put sacramental dispensaries every mile. And then people would come and they would receive their sacraments. They would get their hot dogs and their big gulps. Mm-hmm. And there, there, there's, there's really nothing going on in most of these places more than uh, the dispensing of sacraments uh, and the reception of sacraments, these outwardly kind of um, engaged things that are not forcing us to ask the questions, how should all of this be changing me? Mm-hmm. And how should all of this be changing the engagement that I have with the community that's around the parish? And that's where we come a little bit the set of considerations that you're bringing up. I think there has to be a change in parish life. There has to be a change from a, a dispensary mindset to a mm-hmm. missionary mindset. Uh, we have to start asking the harder questions about identity. And we have to start trying to find, this is the tricky part. We have to start trying to find ways to make people want that challenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the truth is, I mean, I've been teaching politics and other things for a long time now, and I hate to say it, but the truest thing I know is, if somebody doesn't want to learn, there's nothing I can do for them. Mm
3: -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. nothing
1: I can do for them until they Mm -hmm. want to. Um, But I mean, you know, if you're going to ask me where we might begin, I think we have to begin with where um, the church and the gospel and the sacraments are closest to people, uh, and that is going to be parish communities. But I think the church in the decades to come is going to need to undertake a real self-examination, not just about how it's going to keep itself going as an institution with thriving parishes, which is important. (coughs) But what's the missionary relationship of the parish to the parishioner to the world uh, Mm -hmm. is the question we ought to be thinking about.
2: And I think a complicating factor of this, like thinking back to, so I grew, I live three and a half miles from the house where I grew up and we actually just sold it this week. So um, it's uh, very bittersweet, but um, in this area, so in the Maryland suburbs of of DC, um, you know, the greater like Silver Spring area, um, there are probably seven or eight parishes within a 15 minute drive of where I live. And while the parish initially, and, and, you know, my mom having grown up a little bit before Vatican II when it was just, you go by default to the parish whose boundaries you fall within. And technically that's like the right way to do it. And I know the Amiri family feels very strongly about territorial parishes, but um, okay.
0: They're called (laughs)
2: But I mean, the thing is, in this area, so I mean, in my, my mom's, um, and my mom grew up in the same neighborhood, or they moved into the same neighborhood that I grew up in. So they were only, you know, a quarter of a mile away from my grandparents. But the local parish after Vatican II uh, became the avant garde parish of, of the entire area. So it was, you know, homemade bread, liturgical dancing, guitars and tambourines, you know, all that. I mean, by 1960, I, you know, probably even before the 1969 mass came out, they were already doing all these things. Like she remembers there being a, uh, a walkout, um, on, like the Cardinal O'Boyle apparently had all the pastors read when the decision of Humanae Vitae came out and the parish staged a walkout. And I actually, speaking of, uh, of, of Catholic Twitter, I actually was tweeted something about that recently. And a lady was like, yes, my mother walked out. <laughs> it was like, okay, well my mother and her family were the, among the eight people who stayed in the pews. Um, <laughs> Reunions so, are nice. And, and it's oh. funny because my, my, my grandfather was so traditional that it never occurred to him that maybe he'd find more spiritual edification at a different parish that was, five minutes away um but but then you know as the years went by priest numbers went down um you know so it becomes like one pat like the pastor is basically running a you know a stripped down school that has a quarter of the students it once did and maybe has an associate pastor every once in a while and in in this area because we have so many seminaries and and you know, CUA and Georgetown. Like we might have like a priest in residence who's studying in Washington D.C., um, but it's really like you've got the one pastor's personality. You've got his particular charisma. So he could be really rigid. He could be really liberal. He could be into charismatic healing masses. Um, it could just be a blah, dry suburban like open your hymnal to gather us in, and you know. Um, it's, it's so, I mean, it's like, so it's like, it's so tempting just to go to the parish that matches or where you feel more at home. And it, so it becomes more self-selecting. And I don't, and because of, pa- and I mean, granted it's not their fault, but it's, we don't have four or five priests at every parish. And we have so many options that it's like, if you, if you really don't like your pastor, there's nothing like the parish we belong, we belong to, um, I don't live in the boundaries. We when we moved four miles, I you know we just kept going to the same parish because it's like we put so much into this parish, um, and we had to move locally and we couldn't afford to move within the, the boundaries. But I, I I guess the thing is, it's like in theory it seems nice, but everything is so personality driven, and and I mean it it probably shouldn't be this way, but it but it just is the reality if you have a parish that has nothing going on and that's the one where you live in the boundaries and the priest is really boring and they don't get back, you know, you have, I mean- But
3: it's also an idea of like, Okay. So this whole conversation, I've just been listening listening and not being my normal loud self, right? But I feel like there's so much of me in this conversation, not me, but there's so much I in this conversation and self in this conversation. And I'm just listening into this all like, what are my preference? What is my identity? And it just, to me, to be quite honest, it sounds pretty inherently, and I hope I'm not being extremist here, but like unchristian, like, what about like it's it's just how does the faith serve me? How does this personality of this parish serve me? How does how do politics, like we were talking earlier, serve me and my interests? And I'm just like, maybe part of this is teaching us as Christians to like pour out that that empty space from this idea, from this need to fill it with like self-identity to maybe the other, like In a sense, that space, the whole, right, is from the lack of religion, right? (laughs) But as Christians... We know that, like, we don't go have dinner with God every night, right? He's here, yes, but he's here through each other. And so I feel like what we've lost in this very individualistic hyper identity culture is the fact that we experience God through the other. So that's that hole that we've talked about. Instead of filling that with, well, how can I learn more about myself, even if it's like more about myself toward an end toward the other, right? No, how about that hole? It's just straight up filled with less of ourselves and our identity and our preferences and more of, like, the other. So I'm not, like, I'm not, I know I'm being, like, loud now because that's me. But I'm not, like, harping on this idea that, oh, it's just horrible to go to a different parish. But, again, is the faith meant to serve you? Oh, like, and
2: I understand. I'm just, I, and the thing is, like, sorry. I understand that what I am saying is so far from the ideal.
0: Right.
2: It's it's not even I mean, it's just it not. like Steve
0: ep- has a response. He's Steve does have a response. I just
2: Steve want to clarify. So I just He's want to clarify that, that I wasn't like promoting like, my it. vision. I'm just saying okay. this is what happens, and it happens with a lot of people because it's like if I can drive, if all I have to do is drive seven minutes in the other direction, my kids are going to have a much better religious ed program. There's a youth group. If I go okay, this way, it it's is. like. Okay, we got it, Mike. let's,
1: let's, let's yeah. go ahead, all Steve. Right,
2: Steve. I'm going to blow your mind. All right.
0: Oh
2: are you ready?
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: Hold on to something.
3: All right. All right. All right. All
1: right. So I want to take us back to polarization in this conversation. Right. Um, I don't think we've really left it because what we're talking about, and I've experienced this too, when the new priest comes in, suddenly I'm in a different parish. Right. Uh, Mike, you've talked about some of the reasons why that happens and those, those are many of the reasons it happens, but, but here are some others. Um, A lot of what we've experienced in the church, this is going to be, this is not the part that will blow your mind. A lot of what we've experienced in the church has been because of the disputed reception of the second Vatican council, right? Everybody knows this. Mm -hmm. Um, The turning of the church toward a world in which the kinds of people we've been talking about exist, long lived, educated, literate professional thinking for themselves Engaged as citizens in the world and voters, but not in their parishes. And here's the part that's going to blow your mind. The parish is a political community. Not in the sense of having parties or, you know, elections or that kind of stuff. In the sense, in that sense, I was saying, there's those inevitable relationships. We all live here together.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But the model is monarchical.
3: Right. <laughs> yes, true.
1: The, mo- the model is ancient or medieval. And this is not to say, let's get rid of the priest. I'm not, that's the farthest right. thing from what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But what I am saying is I work at a place that trains priests and, well, I mean, men for ordination and lay people for ministry. And there are a lot of well-qualified people, trained and untrained, to be parish leaders. And if I could say this about, um, you know, the, the men who lead parishes as pastors, um, There's a lot to be said for for learning the community that you are there to serve. Mm -hmm. And if you, as a leader, want to bring it to a place, that's a dialogue. It's not an imposition, right? So uh, all of this, in other words, comes back to the disputed reception of the Second Vatican Council and of staking lines and territory and dividing over how we're going to handle the organization uh, and the operation of the parish uh, and the parish as a community. And this is a thing that we've seen uh, at the global level uh, you know, of, of ways in which uh, Rome has defined the organization of the church in years since the council. But it's also something that we know is different from diocese to diocese, depending on the preferences of a particular bishop, as it's different from parish to parish. Uh, in other words, th- this problem in parish life that you're talking about is one that's rooted in a fundamental argument about whether we all should have a say or whether we all should listen to one point of view. And the answer by the way is both. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The universality of the church is the vertical axis and the horizontal axis. Mm-hmm. There's too little of the horizontal axis in parish life, but the truth is also we all could be better citizens, our citizenship in our parishes actually in a country that's lucky to get half of the people to vote in a local election or a statewide or a midterm. uh, Our our participation in our parishes really isn't that different from our participation outside the parishes in public life.
0: And I think that's where what you were saying about you know, starting at the parishes, it's not just we go to our parish to receive an intellectual formation about how we are to engage, but we learn through engaging in our community, in um, participating in like education of children or in parish council and setting programming and negotiating just those little conflicts that come up about who should lector and when and what the altar server should wear. Like those actually are relevant ways of engaging and learning how to be in community with one another because-
1: We have to do it. And, that, and that's what you're calling. what you're describing there is just called formation for Christian life. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's and that formation for Christian life forms us for political life. Okay.
2: <laughs> and I mean, I, I don't want to be particularly hard on priests because I know that it's in a lot of ways, it's a thankless job. but I think sadly, because of the way that Pope Francis has been received, um, you know, he gave a Good Shepherd homily that I um, I, I posted about um, her, talking about this theme about um, priests needing to be close to their people. And I think for most Catholics, including priests, until they've really seen it or experienced it, they don't understand what what that is. Um, I, I mean, I know up until I had a pastor that was life changing in in my own life, I a priest. It was like if you were close to him, that meant you had him over to dinner once every three years and you liked his homilies and he was nice to you after mass. And he did grandma's funeral really well. And, um, you know, and, and he tells and he tells funny jokes. Um, but when you have pastors who are actually um, really wanting to. Uh, accompany people and to to be involved with them and to actually guide them on a personal level that's i mean that's that can be transforming but then sometimes you have that priest who goes to a parish that doesn't want that 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 just that's just not something that they're even you you know they're out of the parking lot within you know 12 seconds i mean even before that dismissal they're you know they go out the back after the after communion and and tear out of the parking lot as quick as possible i mean there's a lot of give and take here and i don't I guess what I'm trying to say is it's kind of hard because it's because there are so many flaws built into the system. It's like people, you can't really blame people for making these, for making these quick decisions or these, for lack of a better word, self-interested decisions about where they're going to go or what they're going to, where they're going to take their children or who they're going to follow. Um, in that sense, and then if you have that priest, as a, I mean, that's the thing. The pastor that I had, he, his old parishioners were driving twenty miles to get to our parish because they didn't like the new guy as much. So,
0: I mean, it seems like what you're getting at is okay. the, the, the. What's is that? The, it's not even the good. Go ahead, go ahead. But what you're getting at, Mike, is you know some will some people don't want to be taught or want to listen or want to really engage. But then there's also like a lack of credibility, um, that is experienced on a, a personal level. And that we also, I mean, I'm sure we could talk another hour about the lack of credibility that we see among pastors, both at parish levels and at diocesan levels in the country, in terms of even teaching on some of the pressing issues of the day. But if there's not a credibility there that's based in relationship and trust and, this social love for those that um, we are with. Thanks for
2: tying it all together, Rachel. Like
0: that much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then it's going to be difficult and we're going to hit these bumps, but isn't the effort of political life to figure out how to negotiate and navigate these difficulties that all of our communities face so that we can build better. I mean, I'm just going to tie this up with a bow since we're over an hour of time now. Oh, wow. But was there anything you would like to conclude with saying, um, Steve, since we've taken so much of your time this evening?
1: Well, I only have about 20 or 30 more minutes of things I want to say. okay. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that's right. I think um, I, I would conclude on this. that That's that's exactly right. We, we were all formed by things we don't control. We didn't ask to be born. We didn't ask to be born where we are, who we are among the people that we meet. Um, And then things happen to us and sometimes bad things happen to us. And and, and those become part of our experience. And, And it can be awfully easy to look around us and point fingers and say, you know, you should be trying harder. You should be more engaged. The world would be better if you weren't doing that. And those things might actually be true. But the truth of political life is very much like the truth about human life. Very much like the truth about the spiritual life, um, it is a doing. It is a going. It is not a getting there, and it is not a done. Uh, it's process. Pro- if I, if I, if you want to write this down and engrave anything on my on my tombstone, process matters more than outcome. How we do things matters so much because we don't know what the epiphanies are that we're going to ignite around us. The greatest pleasure that a classroom instructor ever can have is not remembering the lecture that a student comes back three years later and says that was when the light went on. We never know when it happens, um, which is the reason why we should always be on duty uh, we should always be trying to do these things uh, and always be engaged in the process of looking for that better kind of politics, that better kind of community uh, that starts with me doing my part.
0: And I can tell why you point to Pope Francis as your <laughs> inspiration for that, because he's all about initiating processes. So thank you um, so much for your time this evening. I know, Mike, you wanted to update us on a few things as we wrap up here. Um mm-hmm. You have yeah, something new launching. So, so can you tell so yeah, about that? two
2: two announcements. So there's this thing on the on the social media. Steve, you're off Twitter, so you won't be able to participate in this. It's called Twitter Spaces, okay? And it's it's like Clubhouse, which is another thing that I don't fully understand. Tomorrow at noon Eastern Standard Time, so 9 a.m. Pacific, and I think 6 p.m. in London, 5 or 6 p.m. in London. So this um, is
0: Friday, 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 April
3: 30th. Friday, tomorrow,
2: April yeah. 30th. Christopher Lamb and I are going to do a Twitter Spaces. Now, Twitter Spaces is this thing where you can use your phone to actually like audibly talk to other people. If you can believe that. No.
3: <laughs> That's what they do, Mike. I know. Yeah. Do. But,
2: <laughs> don't you see bye-bye, Bernie? <laughs> My brother played uh the uh Fred Lynn character in high school. So um Wow. Anyway, the oh the the party line. Yeah, it's like the party line, except we can control so Christopher Lamb and I are gonna talk and other people are gonna like I got on it just to see how it worked. Cause I, I'm like, I got this early thing, right? So it's like, I, I want I and then I started talking and then all these other, all these people jumped into the room and started listening to me. And I got really nervous <laughs> and I hung up. Um, but this time I'm not gonna do that. You're gonna listen to two people having a conversation across the Atlantic about churchy things. Second, okay. and this is more long-term it, we might, o- it only might be like three minutes long, who knows? It could be life-changing, but it's a one-time event. It's not recorded. It's two people talking in real time. And then when they hang up, it's over. If you can believe that. Um, And the other thing is where Peter is, is launching a new live stream product. For lack of a better word. We have product. I don't know. We have where brand. I don't know. We have where Peter is live, right? Thursdays at eight Eastern, five Pacific, and whatever else where, whatever where seven right now, yeah. yeah whatever, you, and then we on Sunday evening at eight p.m. Eastern time, seven Central, five Pacific, whatever in Australia and London, um, David Lafferty is launching a program, and I will be with him on the first episode at least um, called the Critical Catholic, which you know, David's expertise in, um, in conspiracy theory and, and trends and sociology and thought, and, and we're going to have some great guests on there to kind of like get to the bottom of, as we were speaking about this alternate reality that seems to have embraced the church. Let's, let's, you know, I'm sure he'd love to have you on as a guest, Steve, um, talk about the psychology, the sociology, what can we do to help put, um, get Catholics to start thinking critically, which is not like being critical, but not being negative, but to actually think about things, um, you know, with a critical eye, to evalu- learn how to evaluate things to to test hypotheses. So um, those of you who enjoyed the old Papa Bergoglio, or the, the old uh, Petersfield Hospital uh, podcast where we get into these really geeky deep dives into these subjects that's what we're that's kind of what this is you know david lafferty is probably one of actually he's not the nerdiest person we have on where peter is but he's close <laughs> so he's going to be spearheading this project i said if you're willing to produce it then you know same bat time same bat channel on sundays david lafferty critical catholic
0: okay Well, everyone knows to tune in. It starts this Sunday. I
2: think so. And I'm going to, we made a little video last night that I, if I get around to uploading it, I will. It's sort of a preview of us talking about stuff. So
0: Okay. So everyone can tune in then. Yes. Yeah.
2: And we'll be back on when Rachel?
0: We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. We are not changing our format as far as I'm aware. We'll still be here talking about the topics of the day and recent content on the site and all that. Um, So please like and share this episode from wherever you are watching. If you're watching in the future or listening um, on your podcast app, then please subscribe so you get all of our latest episodes. And if you like what Where Peter Is does, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That link is on our website, as always. But that's all we have for tonight. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you guys later. Bye.
1: Bye. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody.